0: Thank you for joining us for the Red View Blue View podcast, where two voices on opposite sides of the political aisle talk politics, current events, and social issues. This is Shelly. I'm an independent, progressive, and left-leaning with a pinch of fiscal conservatism. I think we should all engage in civil discourse with those who have different points of view. So let's get started. Today we're fortunate to have Ryan Shuling, executive producer of two conservative talk radio shows on 630 K Howe in Denver, the Dan Kaplis Show and the Leland Conway show, Mondays to Fridays four to six and two to four respectively. Both very good shows. My conservative friends listen to you regularly, Ryan. <laughs> Uh, Ryan has 20, more than 22 years of experience in radio and television and journalism, including in professional sports. He's done play-by-play baseball and other sports reporting, uh, football, basketball, hockey, tennis, uh, others. And Ryan was one of the first journalists to break the story of Michigan State University's cover-up of Larry Nassar's abuse of the gymnastics team athletes there. Ryan, I thought we could discuss a few topics that are in the news today, and I'm curious to see how many of them will agree on or disagree on.
1: <laughs> Let's go!
0: I don't know if you saw it, right? Today in the news, once again, we have Sarah Palin. I was surprised to see her in the mm-hmm, news. Mm-hmm. Man, I never liked her. Uh, I thought she was terrible back when she ran for office, and I didn't like her stance on gun laws. In this map that she published of uh, congressional districts that she wanted to win at the time, with the crosshairs over the sec- over the particular districts, thought it was tacky. I just never liked her. Um, but in today's news, or yesterday's news, She is having her trial uh, against the New York Times, finally, for a defamation claim that she had made, and it's taking place right now, and I agree with her on her claims. I hope she's successful, uh, because I think the media needs to start being more careful with the facts. Since you're a journalist, I thought you'd appreciate, I did look up the actual text of the Editorial in question. It was a New York Times editorial. It was written in 2017 by a young New York Times staffer who wanted to write that day there had been that terrible shooting at the GOP baseball practice. And the staffer had emailed, sent around an email that said, you know, are we going to cover this? And someone responded, actually, one of the defendants in the case, the head editorial writer, um, James Bennett, responded, I just don't see it. Uh, a, you can keep, you know, researching something like that. And he said, a, a crazy Democrat, going after Republicans? Question mark? Question mark? Question mark? He just couldn't conceive that, that was the. It didn't go with the narrative of gun violence in his in his view. So during the the day, the story was developing, and uh, and that uh, editor also sent around an email. This has all come out now in the trial. Sent around an email that said, well, have you? linked it to, did we ever write anything about Gabby Gifford, the shooting in 2011, I think it was, uh, at a grocery store where six people died and 14 were wounded, including Congresswoman Gabby Giffords. And he, so he was tr- already trying to sort of link these uh, two events. And, and, you know, he had a kind of narrative in mind as the day was going on, and she was writing this. And ultimately, she wrote, I'll, I'll read you what she wrote, and then how he rewrote it, and I'm curious, since you're a journalist, yeah. uh, if you can, you know, what you think. So her, her paragraph that she wrote was this. Just as in 2011, when Jared Lee Lofner opened fire in a supermarket parking lot, grievously wounding Representative Gabby Giffords and killing six people, including a nine-year-old girl, Mr. Hodgkinson's rage, that was the shooter at the GOP baseball practice, Mr. Hodgkinson's rage was nurtured in a vile political climate. Then it was the pro-gun right being criticized. In the weeks before the shooting, Sarah Palin's political action committee circulated a map of targeted electoral districts that put Ms. Giffords and 19 other Democrats under stylized crosshairs. That's what the article originally said when she turned it into her superiors. Now, the uh, James Bennett, who was the head at the time the head editorial page writer at the Times, uh, who is also the brother of Michael Bennett, Colorado's Democratic right. congressman. Correct. So, uh, you know more liberal on gun on Correct. gun policy. So he rewrites it like this. Was this attack evidence of how vicious American politics has become? Probably. In 2011, when Jared Lee, Jared Lee Lofner opened fire in a supermarket park, parking lot, grievously wounding Representative Gabby Giffords and killing six people, including a nine-year-old girl... The link to political incitement was clear. Before the shooting, Sarah Palin's political action committee circulated a map of targeted electoral districts that put Ms. Giffords and 19 other Democrats under stylized crosshairs. Conservatives and right-wing media were quick on Wednesday to demand forceful condemnation of hate speech and crimes by anti-Trump liberals. They're right. Though there is no sign of incitement as direct as in the Giffords' attack— Liberals should, of course, hold themselves to the same standard of decency that they ask of the right. Now, Ryan, as far as I remember, and as I understand, there was no link between Sarah Palin's map and the Gabby Gifford shooting. Um, there was never any link proven or any any indication of that whatsoever. As you can see from his the things he un- inserted into her writing, the link to political incitement was clear back in the Sarah Palin case instead of you know, they're writing this six years later, they're talking about an entirely different event, the 2017 GOP congressman baseball practice shooting. So that's what the, that's what Sarah Palin's defamation suit is about. It's a tough suit to win because the current standard uh, under the law is uh, actual malice. She has to prove it's hard to show that the times um, had actual malice there, but you know, what do you, what do you think?
1: Well, the coming together, and I'm glad that you and I are having this conversation because you with your legal mind and then me with my journalism experience, you know, this is how you kind of, I think, flesh out the details of what is the, the context, what is the texture of this story and how does it evolve from where you said it, as it was originally written to this editorial re-edit. And what I'm hearing is complete bias and it's, it's so endemic to borrow a term parlance of the times that is very popular within newsrooms that there is this culture of complete agreement, echo chambers, nobody questions one another, nobody thinks to run a story with rigor through a gauntlet of a jaundiced eye. There are not enough conservative voices In newsrooms, editorial staffs, and this is why talk radio, even though the technology perhaps is a bit outdated, but in the form of podcast, and we we see it with Joe Rogan, and I wouldn't even call him a conservative, but he's not that. That's kind of the whole term I've come up with, but whatever that is, and we're talking extreme, far left, liberal bias, you look at that and you go, I might not be totally like Ted Cruz, Josh Hawley, but I'm not that And you hear it come through in the language of really the orientation of the writer. In this case, Bennett. Bennett is writing it from a liberal perspective. He goes, look at what those guys did over there. And I'm paraphrasing, but not by much in the rewrite that you just said. right? Conservatives prompted, caused, Sarah Palin with the crosshairs, and I've seen that publication. She was not held legally uh, responsible for that, by the way. No,
0: there was, I believe, no...
1: Link. No link, no lawsuit, nothing. Not even civil or otherwise. Now, you know far more about that than I do. But just the whataboutism that starts the premise of the conversation. Right. And then Bennett comes back and says, we liberals. Now, he doesn't say we, but he might as well have. We have to hold ourselves to the same standard as those guys over there. Which is, again, it's the pretext of the entire editorial, which is warped. It is biased in its very nature. Now, the the complication I see, and again, you can speak more to this from the legal standpoint than I can, but you look at Times versus Sullivan, and Sarah Palin being a public figure also right. comes into this where, let's say Nick Sandman. He was the young man from Covington uh, Catholic School. He was on the Capitol having a pro-life rally wearing a MAGA hat, and the Native American gentleman comes up and start beating a drum in his face. The media skewered that poor young boy I saw and I would call them former friends of mine on Twitter calling for him to be slapped across the face. I want to slap that smirk off that kid's face. Like mm. this is the this is the temperature of the room now right. politically and I got to say that's the problem. Most of it's coming from the left. It just is. This this harsh knee-jerk violent visceral hatred of reaction. The hatred is on one side yeah. and it's on the left and in this case unfortunately for Sarah Palin it's a high bar. It's a high standard as a public figure to prove defamation, to prove, I think in this case, libel is the specific, I mean, there's critical legal definitions here that are in play. But she's a target, pardon the pun, sure. because of the previous incident with Giffords, uh, for anybody on the left. And she's got a, she, there's a reasonable expectation that she is going to be faced with this kind of fake news. I mean, sure. Donald Trump to well, be that's, another one.
0: That's why the standard is actual malice. Right for public figures like hers. But apparently, the, and I didn't know this until I read about this case, the uh, Supreme Court, certain justices have indicated a willingness to back away from that high standard mm-hmm. of actual malice. The, the the end result of that would be to, to make the media report facts more accurately. Years ago, I would have disagreed with you that the, the anger and the vitriol was coming from the left. I definitely see that now over the last couple of years. Um, I used to think Gosh, people are awfully hard on President Obama. Mm-hmm. It must be because of the color of his skin. You know, the right was very, very, very hard on him, and in other instances too. You know, the right has also been been very hard on on certain uh, public figures. But yeah, I would agree with you. In the last couple of years, we've really seen a lot of hate and um, mean, really mean actions uh, come out of the left. And uh, your show yesterday, you had a you had a texter. Um, you know, texting the location of your host's child mm-hmm. uh, when he was speaking out about a conservative issue, which, you know, is just awful. So uh, I agree. And, and that's the problem. You had said in one of your shows this week, you had said something about, you know, you can't let the the narrative drive the story, Correct. which is what the media has done lately. It should be the story that drives the narrative. In other words, it should be facts that drive the narrative. But that's not what has been happening. The media already has the narrative, and they've been trying to put facts in to meet the um, to meet the narrative.
1: Yeah, and to me, it's these are basic tenets of journalism. And you know, once in a while, I'll see a rare exception. Uh, we saw it this week with uh, the press conference for the uh, intelligence that was uh, released about Russia possibly staging a false flag operation. Hey, Ukraine attacked us, so we responded. Right. And the basic word uh, from the Biden administration was, we've seen the intelligence, you need to just trust us. This was Ned Price, uh, spokesperson for the Department of State. And God bless one of the journalists there who just dug in his heels and said, no, that, that's not good enough. You know, you know What intelligence? What, what are you talking about? Well, we, I just told you. I mean, it's this whole gaslighting campaign of, it's funny to me because these are the same, the artists like Neil Young and Joni Mitchell right. and Peter Frampton, they're coming out and now they're wagging their fingers going, do as you're told, listen to the government, trust them uh, beyond measure. Whereas during their coming of age generation, the 60s, the flower children, right. trust no one over 30. Right. Don't trust Nixon. Right. They're lying to you about Vietnam. Question everything. Oh. I am in agreement with that ethos. You should question everything. I tell people all the time on our shows, and I want to make this very clear, don't just take my word for it. I have an opinion, but I might be wrong. Gather your own information, make up your own minds. But now, like you're saying, these editorial boards are driving a narrative and trying to force square pegs into round holes to fit that narrative. They have a predetermined outcome in mind, whereas a true journalist goes in With an open mind, I'm going to go wherever this story takes me. And if it happens to condemn the left, oh, well. Right. I'm going to report on the facts. But the thing is, you know, people talk about diversity hires, right? Quotas, affirmative action. Talking about it right now with SCOTUS and appointing a black female because she's a black female. Okay. My point is, if you truly want a diversity hire right now in a newsroom, on a college campus, you would hire somebody like me. Sure. A conservative white male because they don't <laughs> exist right. in those universes I just right. described.
0: Right. Well, you're right. It's funny you mentioned the Spotify example because I'm part of a – on Facebook, I'm in this liberal um, group. It's it, it, it formed during the uh, election. It's a national. It's a very big – I believe hundreds of thousands of members. Everyone was in the group was posting, you know, they're turning off their Spotify, they're canceling their subscription, they're praising Neil Young and the other musicians who've taken their music off Spotify because of Joe Rogan's interview. And I commented on there, um, don't you think that this could backfire at some point, you know, when a venue is taken away from you because of, you know, someone puts something on there that is, that you politically disagree with, you know, why is it that you would want to censor Spotify or YouTube or Twitter, you know, how can you support that just because you don't agree with something you heard on there? And the responses I got to my comment were hateful and mm-hmm. vitriolic. And they said, people said, because they're killing people with their lies. And I thought, I said to myself, do you really think that in, to interview a doctor mm-hmm. who was involved in the creation of the technology of the, you know, the COVID shot to interview him about the medical aspects of that, to get his medical opinion on that and to put it on the air. Do you really think that that killed anyone? That's crazy. You're crazy if you think that killed someone. So that idea, this idea that any view but your own is somehow dangerous disinformation. It's very contrary to the First Amendment, very contrary to American yeah. uh, American principles. And as an attorney, and and I think all attorneys, hopefully, it should be whether you're left or right. You know, the Constitution's extremely important. It needs to be. It's, it's the one thing we have that differentiates us, including the First Amendment. Well,
1: and to your point on Spotify, uh, David Crosby came out with a tweet, and I quote: "Tweeted it, and I thought it was more." level-headed, reasonable, rational than what Neil Young said. Neil Young basically went to Spotify with an ultimatum and said, it's, it's him or me. You can have Joe Rogan or Neil Young, but you can't have both, or I'm taking my music and I'm going home. And what that was is a threat of Spotify is going to weigh their choices and they could have made a choice of, you know, we don't want to lose Neil Young. So yeah, we'll give into your ransom demands. And we'll deplatform Joe Rogan and void our contract with him. Now they could have made that decision. I think it was a stupid decision, but they could have made that decision. Why that's dangerous, why I thought David Crosby handled better was Crosby says, I don't want to deplatform Joe Rogan. I don't want to take, you know, his voice away, but I don't want my music on a platform that would have Joe Rogan. Which I'll, I'll dissect that. Free speech, to right? So a little. you're
0: saying it's okay to pull your own music because that's your speech choice.
1: It is, right. but I, I find it Dis- utterly disappointing because of what Crosby, Stills, Nash, and Young, what they stood for, which was finding truth, which was questioning authority, which was writing a song like Ohio about the Kent State University right. shootings and not just taking what you were told by government as gospel, like I mentioned with the Ned Price example, you question it. And the fact that Joe Rogan is questioning the narrative, he is questioning authority, he is questioning the established government line on COVID, which I might add has changed uniformly and manifestly over the course of two years, almost on every single topic having to do with COVID. Do right. we wear masks or not? Do the vaccines work or not? Do the vaccines prevent infection or not? Do the vaccines pre- prevent transmission or not? No, 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 no. Right. And that's all changed. And Dr. Fauci can get away. You talk about a found a misinformation. If you just go back and play his recorded comments, he contradicts himself now right. on every single topic having to do with COVID. But his out always is, well, the science changed. You know, if your kids could use that in school on a wrong answer on a what well, the science changed. I was right originally, but now it changed. And now my answer's different. I mean, think about that. Right? right. And with somebody like David Crosby not willing to share a platform with Rogan, here's the problem. If we all went around and said, I'm not going to be on that platform, this one over there, because I don't agree with what one person on that platform says – We won't have any platforms. exactly, And everybody will just be off in the wilderness on their own platform. It
0: seems like everyone should want to have, you know, a variety of opinions and information on. But how does this differ then with the New York Times? They'll say their defense is, well, free speech, right? The same thing I'm advocating for here, free speech. You know, is there at at what point um, do the facts that you're publishing the wrong facts, you know, at what point? You know, does the does the First Amendment need to be protected versus the uh, uh, the media need to be held accountable for publishing something that's not
1: true? Well, because and this is going to be maybe a surprise take from me, but why I think the Palin case will fail and why I think the New York Times should be free to publish fake news is because what you just said is held accountable by whom? The New York Times will be held accountable by their readers. By the people who choose never to read the New York Times again in the marketplace of ideas where this is battle. This is why for so many years, and we were just talking about this before the podcast, Rush Limbaugh was such a tour de force on talk radio. And as a pundit nationally, whenever he would come out with a take, CNN would, Rush Limbaugh says this, because Rush established... A counter to all the liberal media. And that was at a time, mind you, 1988, when he first started his national show. And he claimed, you know, Dan Rather is a liberal. CBS is, you know, they're full of crap. They're biased. And people had been in kind of this Pollyanna-type state of, well, I don't know about that. Walter Cronkite seemed like a nice guy. And I trusted him. You know, there was that relationship that people had with these news people. And Rush opened people's eyes to say, no. Look at the narratives and how they're always coming from one side, how most of the construct of the corporate mainstream media is far left, liberal, anti-conservative. And I think that started to flesh itself out when President George Herbert Walker Bush, there's a notorious interview in which he went on with Dan Rather. And Rather just was rude and condescending and interrupting the president of the United States And now this is when he was still running. I think it was 1988. And it was one of the first things that Rush talked about on one of his national shows. And you just saw the tone and tenor that Rather took with Herbert Walker Bush, completely different than he would have taken with, say, Jimmy Carter or Bill Clinton or later with Barack Obama. But then with W, same thing. Dan Rather lied about George W. Bush. Dan Rather's career ended because of George W. Bush and the hit piece that he did, Dan Rather on 60 Minutes, and he was held accountable. Now it's going to be—it's a longer road. I think it's so embedded, this liberal bias. New York Times has been like that for decades. That it's harder to hold them to account. Well, that's but I what, don't think that should be the job of a court to decide sir,
0: it. Yeah. So that's where I disagree with you. I think um, I think that if you lie about a person, so in this case, the article linked her to inciting a shooting that she did not incite. Um, I think that if you publish false information like that, you should be held accountable when someone can show that this statement is untrue. Whereas, obviously, there's other um, types of editorialization that uh, maybe it's just, you know, expressing a viewpoint. And and I think that's what the examples you're speaking to. But yeah, I, I hope I actually hope she's successful in that.
1: And just to, to put a button on it with her, I mean, in this instance, I do agree with you in principle that what they published was false and misleading. Again, I hesitate just because of the, the whole slippery slope notion of what is fake news and right. who determines misinformation. Right. And we see that with the Biden administration labeling stuff and wanting Spotify to deplatform misinformation. Right. I don't want any of that, slope. and yeah. I don't want to go down that road.
0: Right. Um, did you see where the where GoFundMe took off the Canadian Truckers GoFundMe page this week?
1: Despicable. You now this is a, a platform in GoFundMe that allowed donations like Kamala Harris was calling for during the campaign to let the rioters of Black Lives Matter and Antifa go free. To raise bail basically for them, right. let that happen. Right. Didn't deplatform that, right. but it's purely political here. With, right. In the case of the Canadian truckers, why otherwise would you say nope? We're shutting that down. I
0: know. I was really disappointed to see that GoFundMe did that again. It seems to be censoring, you know, censoring people for stating something that you disagree with. I think it's a terrible precedent for the First Amendment and you know for American freedoms
1: generally. And it's one of two things, and I fear it's the latter. It's either they're so high on their own supply, let's go that (laughs) way, that they don't even realize how biased they are. That's one. They're ignorant of it because they're just inculcated with it. Or two, they know damn well that they're being biased and they're just so brazen and arrogant that they don't care. And they're going to do their liberal thing anyway. And that's what GoFundMe did. And I, I hope, again, marketplace of ideas, conservatives, even people who are unaffiliated, middle, right of center, just center, center left. They see these biases, and you know I'm not going to use GoFundMe anymore. That's the reaction. That's the response that we need: is the consumer, just to, with their dollars, the power of their footsteps, to say mm, I'm done with GoFundMe. And yeah. I hope that happens.
0: I wish. I actually wish um, GoFundMe, YouTube, uh, Spotify, Facebook, Twitter. I wish that we can reanalyze the role of the First Amendment with private companies like that, because those. I mean, I think technology-wise from a realistic standpoint, those are public venues at this point. I mean, YouTube is the largest, you know, the largest venue for videos on earth. And uh, Facebook is one of the largest uh, places for speech on earth. So I've never understood why that should be treated any differently. I think uh, to censor anyone on any of these Mm -hmm. venues is the wrong thing to do.
1: And I I would agree in the sense that there, there are some members of Congress, including one of our own Representatives who have talked to about this and Ken Buck were trying to bust up these They're pretty much monopolies when you talk about Facebook and that forum and that platform Twitter and its public square uh, status uh, in American conversation YouTube with the presence of their videos and what they choose to publish and what they choose not to this is not it These are not impartial editorial staffs or boards and we've seen that exposed specifically with Twitter under the reign of Jack Dorsey in that they silenced the whole Hunter Biden story. They were working hand in glove with the Democratic Party, advancing their talking points about yeah, it being Russian disinformation. And so, yes, I would like there to be more competition, but at this point, like you said, Twitter's kind of like Kleenex, right? It's it's become ubiquitous. The uh, Puffs doesn't like the fact that, you know, I'm gonna go buy some Kleenex. But that's what we call it because that's what we've come to know it as. Uh, In in not-too-distant past, you know, I'm going to go Xerox a copy of this. Well, Xerox is a company. That's a brand, right? There are other copies. Sure. And now I'm going to tweet something has become a ubiquitous verb. And there isn't really a competitive uh, counterpart to that to drive, you know, the market of I'm going to choose between Twitter or Rumble. You know, it's not a level playing field. And I think that that is a role of Congress is to try to establish a level playing field.
0: Ryan, then how would you then distinguish, though? I want to keep us honest here. How would you, uh, on your show this week, you talked a lot about the uh, Doug Co. teacher strike. Um, Why isn't that just another form of free speech then? Uh, And that is stepping out of your job to protest, you know, something that that you disagree with.
1: Wow, I mean, here's a can of worms. Okay, so (laughs) what you have is a public sector union, which I don't think should be allowed to exist private sector unions, that's fine, auto workers, etc. You're talking about government-funded, taxpayer-funded teachers in schools taking a stand for themselves as part of a public sector union and using the children as pawns on the chessboard in their game uh, with the newly elected school board. And I think there should be, I agree with the encampus on this, professional consequences for doing such a thing. And when we see the really cavalier attitude of those in the union, the vice president who was caught on that zoom call, which thankfully somebody leaked. And I'm going to think it's a right of center teacher who didn't agree with where the union was going.
0: Yeah, I liked that you published that. Good for you.
1: <clears throat> and well, they, they just were so brazen and arrogant about what are they going to do? Fire us. That's a direct quote from the vice president of the Douglas County teachers. Uh, or do they to fire
0: us all, basically?
1: Well, and they can say that, and they can wield that sword, if you will, because there's no check or balance on them.
0: Well, that, how is that different than the, the truckers? Some people will say that but the truckers are blocking the traffic and making things, dif- you know, they're not holding children hostage, as you just articulated, but they're maybe causing other, you know, difficulties in Ottawa. Is that different only because one's private and one's public? Or yes. because there are children involved?
1: Both. And you know, what the truckers are doing, I mean, they're putting their livelihoods at stake. I mean, they're risking their jobs. Certainly they are. Right. I and mean, in Canada, right. where they're being uh, required to be vaccinated. And a lot of the American trucking companies look like they're going to do the same thing with a convoy uh, from the California coast to DC. Uh, and I don't have any problem with them doing that. I know they disrupt the supply chain and that could have um, impact on all of us, but I support them. I support them in the sense that this is their individual rights and livelihoods and a government trying to force them to be vaccinated one with a vaccine that doesn't have a track record of success or failure or what the long term effects impact and two you you look at the medical choices the freedom of those individual truckers for a vaccine that does not prevent infection does not prevent transmission so we're not even talking about something that's as durable as a polio vaccine or, sure. or other things that have been proven. and yet they're being forced proven.
0: to take this medical treatment.
1: Right, and in a way ahead of its time. So back to the Doug Co. teachers in this case. Again, there's been no check or balance against their power, against them being bullies and thugs in a union to do whatever they want to do. And now, this past fall, all of their candidates lost in a dual election that – Parents decided they wanted these three members of the board to voice, to be their voice on the side of the parents and the students, anti-mask, et cetera, anti-mask mandate, and teachers just, they can't accept the results of an election, something we heard a lot of criticism about with Trump supporters in 2020, and yet when the election doesn't go their way, they say, we're going to take back power. Well, how Well, They're staging a coup right. against a school board that isn't necessarily lockstep on their side. And they're so used to, they're so spoiled, these teachers of having a superintendent who had been there for 22 years, who was lockstep with them, rubber stamped everything they wanted to do, a school board that did the same, and they're just used to getting their way. And like spoiled children, all of a sudden, now that they don't get their way on every single little thing, including curriculum, with regard to equity, they're going to stomp their feet, hold their breath go hide, not want their names to be public, apparently, because either they believe in this cause or they don't, and try to wait it out and see if that kind of pressure will cause parents, kids to cave in.
0: Yeah, that was discouraging. In fact, and and, uh, being a parent of a school-aged child, uh, you pointed out one of the teacher's quotes in that recording that you just mentioned was, quote, Everyone's going to be equally behind. That really rubbed me the wrong way because it's the same thing we heard during COVID as parents. Oh well, don't worry, everyone's going to be behind equally. I hated hearing that Um, as a parent of kids who are you know in advanced placement and and you know really really worked hard their entire you know school age years to to kind of get them ahead on certain things to to just accept, and and for any level student, really, to just accept that they're going to fall behind because of, you know, and what happened with COVID. Um, What really irked me there was that Colorado has a statute that outlines how many hours kids are supposed to go to school per year. And it varies by age, it's about a 1000 hours a year. And it says, that's how many hours of teacher pupil contact time they're supposed to have. During COVID, the Colorado Department of Education provided guidance that basically eviscerated that statute, which I would argue is unconstitutional because that's the executive branch providing, you know, basically changing the law. You know, surprise, surprise, some smart parents who could afford it moved out of these districts who were keeping kids out of school. Some moved out of state, some to private schools, some to home schools. In Denver Public Schools now, you might have seen in the news, Mm -hmm. suffering from lower enrollment as a result. So um, I was especially disturbed to hear that the Doug Coe teacher's quote, everyone's going to be equally behind if we you know, miss school just a few more days.
1: Well, that tells you everything you need to know about what the priorities are here. And the priorities are the political interests of the teachers. And again, them getting their own way, having power, uh, ignoring the will of the people in an election just the November before, the input of parents who do not want equity taught in schools. And that very line itself tells you what equity is. It's holding the smartest kids back so the the, the slower kids don't feel as bad. And we're going to make everybody suffer equally. You know what that sounds a lot like? That's Marxism. That's communism. We're all going to be equally behind. We're all going to be short of par but at least we're all the same, we're all equal. That's equity, that's the difference between equality and a word that every time I hear it now, it's a buzzword that makes me cringe, equity. I saw a Pac-12 commercial for athletics. And I'm a big sports guy, as you know. Yeah, I know you are. And the ad in it promised diversity and equity in its schools. That word's not an accident, it's not a mistake. It's changed from equality because equality does not ensure an equal outcome. Right. Equality of opportunity means we're all at the same start line, but where you finish is up to you. That's merit-based. Equity is a guaranteed finish line. And it doesn't matter whether you're above that, below that. We're all going to push these kids along. In your example, if they're equally behind, well, that's okay because everybody got the same punishment. Terrible idea. It's backwards. It's completely backwards. Mm-hmm. And you, know, you play this out in any other construct, any other employer-employee relationship, you know, teachers have it pretty darn good. And my sister's a teacher, I don't mean to besmirch them or degrade them in any way, but I think there's a lot of teachers out there who unfortunately are in the minority who might agree with a lot of the things you and I are saying. that do do not agree lockstep with their union, that want to buck that trend, but they're powerless to do so. And that's why there's two things. One, I would, this is a radical approach, but I would end all public sector unions that are government funded by taxpayers. The teachers are paid by us. They are our employees, our employees, not of the school board, not of the school district, ours. They make money. They have jobs because of us. They don't get to lobby against us. That's what's happening. They get to collectively bargain against us through taxes and millages and everything else. Well, I think
0: most, in defense of most teachers, I think most teachers... I think most teachers... Hated the, you know, being out of school during COVID, hated the right. idea of remote teaching, hated being away from the kids, hated seeing the kids fall behind and, uh, you know, really struggled with that as, you know, in some ways as much as kids did and, yes. and uh, really recognize that uh,
1: it was terrible for kids. The other part of this, though, is the element of school of choice, which in Michigan, my home state, we have. If we have to compete, I have to compete. You have to compete in in the legal field against other law firms and lawyers. I have to compete for my job, for my very existence as a radio producer with others that are striving to have my job. I have to compete against them. And as radio stations, we have to compete against other radio stations. Make teachers compete. Make schools compete for kids. Fund students, not systems. And you'll see a quick change in tune. I'm talking overnight. If that were to happen, and now parents are allowed to shop and go, I don't want to go to Denver Public Schools. Screw that. Well, that's, I'm going to send my kids over here.
0: That's what's happening. And that's why Denver Public Schools is yeah. seeing lower enrollment because of how they handled the pandemic. Um, one of the things, though, that happened during that time is they counted kids. Yeah, they changed the rules for counting kids for to get funding right. uh, so that they wouldn't lose money during, uh, during COVID, which they should have. And they should uh, continue to, I mean... The, the districts, in my view, um, including my kids school district did a terrible job at educating kids and making kids the priority during the uh, during the pandemic. So. Um, yeah, I would like to see, uh, I would like, I would agree with you on choice and on, uh, on funding. I've always been a big supporter of public schools and public school funding. I've always voted for every, Mm -hmm. um, tax increase in my area for my, my kids, public schools. Uh, even though I'm very conservative fiscally, Mm -hmm. uh, when you're not even having school, (laughs) you know, um, that's a problem, and uh, I, I totally agree with you there. Uh, there should be consequences. Speaking of fiscal conservatism, uh, that's one area that I'm really conservative in. and I was wondering, Ryan, if you have any thoughts on uh, what we've seen in the news here lately with the economy and the state of the state of our economy uh, because of the last couple of years, I've been very Uh, upset to see both parties um both democrats and republicans voting in favor of trillions of dollars what are we at eight nine trillion dollars in stimulus money so far they put the word covid on it so Mm -hmm. everyone would support it everybody signed it most most all republicans except for a few and all democrats signed you know pouring dumping eight or nine trillion dollars into the economy i don't think it saved any lives but that's the um the premise that it was eight or nine trillion. You have to put that in perspective. I think our whole federal budget is something like $1.7 trillion (laughs) per year. So we're talking in just over a year, less than two years to put in eight or nine trillion versus the entire normal federal budget of 1.7 and pouring this in. It's printed money. It's borrowed money. At the same time, Ryan, I don't know if you were following this Interestingly, no, virtually no journalists were reporting on this during the pandemic and before the pandemic. Before the pandemic started, the Federal Reserve had a practice of quantitative easing, which they continued. They, they Increased greatly during the pandemic, but it started before the pandemic. And what it was was basically buying bad assets off of banks' balance sheets. More bailing out the banks. We've seen that over the years. We saw it in 2007, 2008, and the Fed had this practice. And it was in the you know hundreds of billions of dollars pouring into the overnight repo markets, um, and 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 also um, basically printing money to to uh to buy bad assets bad mortgages bad uh you know junk bonds um all kinds of assets off of balance sheets and buying u.s treasury bonds i believe it's the first time in history that the the federal reserve was buying um federal treasury bonds basically buying your own debt Mm -hmm. back. right um all of that was going on and the stimulus money was going on and so what's the obvious result and this is what upsets me about Journalists not reporting on this. And there must have been there must be, you know, journalists who focus on financial issues. I don't know where they've been. But the obvious result of all of that is inflation and hyperinflation. And now we're seeing it. And even now, if you look at the news, the way it's being reported, it's like, well, is, you know, there's some inflation caused by covid and you, know, and, you know, it's not that the facts aren't reported, which is, no, the inflation was caused by what I just described, the stimulus money, the Federal Reserve, and the quantitative easing, massive, you know, amounts of money pouring into the economy. Um, and it's now all gone out. And, you know, they're reporting 7% inflation right now, which I think is very uh, – is actually very understated because, mm-hmm. you know, they use the CPI. That doesn't include everything um, – We have hyperinflation right now. Anyone who's going to the grocery store can see it. You're paying maybe you know 30, 40 percent more per bag of groceries than you were paying before. It's really affecting all of us, and um, you know it just hasn't been reported on. And so now the Federal Reserve is preparing to raise interest rates. Finally, the problem with that is it causes uh, the stock market to fall, um, and it, it. Probably can cause a recession, and so that's the predicament we're in now. Um, it, it has to be corrected, but you know it's sort of they're doing to begin with, and then you know we see these consequences. It's really unfortunate.
1: Yeah, you uh, art- articulated that very well, and there have been warning bells sounded. I think if you were to watch uh, like Fox Business with Neil Cavuto and Stuart Varney and Charles Payne, I mean these are guys who's Uh, both the political and uh, financial philosophy are much in line with mine and from what it sounds like with yours as well. What was not foreseen, I don't believe, except by maybe those that were keenly aware and plugged in, and I would include my colleague Ross Kaminsky in this group He used to trade stocks in Chicago, he has a pretty firm grasp on economic theory, was the pouring of all of this money, federal spending, into the economy was going to create an inflation bubble. The original premise was going to be, well, we're kicking the can down the road and our kids might pay for it later. Well, we're paying for it now. I mean, this inflation bubble is so big, like you're saying, 7%, I don't think does it justice, in bursting in the American dollar's value, decreasing, It going not as far. When you turn to talk about cost of living... Rents have skyrocketed. I mean, this was a, a featured story yeah. here in Colorado and specifically used in Denver. Of used,
0: price of used cars,
1: all is of up that, like thirty, forty percent. Car rentals, which one another one, though the more. I I looked into renting a car recently when I visited my buddy down in Tampa over the holidays, and the sticker shock was unbelievable. I mean, we're talking about price increases over 200%. Yeah. Over 200%. And you mentioned the grocery stores. I've noticed that, too. And I'm sure everybody listening to this podcast has experienced it firsthand. You look at a price of just a box of cereal is over $5 now when it was maybe two ninety nine, same cereal. Uh, and as President Biden calls it, hamburger meat, which apparently he hasn't bought himself in 40 years or so. <laughs> I've never heard anybody call it that. But uh, the price of that per pound, the price of bacon. I mean, you go through all the staples that you would uh, yeah. normally uh, bring home. And you're right, you, when you look at the grocery bill at the end of your trip, it is significantly higher than it was even just a year ago, and certainly two years ago. And so wages are not keeping up with the rate of inflation. The Biden administration, Jen Psaki in particular, tried to sell us the bill of goods that inflation's actually good for the economy. It shows that we're recovering. It shows that people are spending. And that's true, but a lot of that's by necessity, and it's not because the economy's strong that that's driving inflation. It's because the money was artificially poured into the economy, and that raises the, the prices for everybody on every item every system that delivers those goods the supply chain has suffered as a result so you don't have fully stocked shelves that's why you see bare shells biden trending on twitter at times and i've seen it myself it's a disaster and disaster
0: but it also i mean it's affecting us ryan but what about our kids and our grandkids i mean this is really bad for them and it's just such a it's really uh you know the the government's um, failure in in preventing this from happening to our kids. And, 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 what, our grandkids.
1: and what is President Biden's answer to this? It what he always comes out with. It's the old tried and true go to method for liberal Democrats. We're going to throw more money at the problem. We're going to spend more. He just gave a speech to uh, the New York Police Department in which. He wants to spend half a billion dollars on programs, incentives, initiatives uh, for more social workers and mental health care workers uh, to accommodate the police force. He's talking about build back better. He wants to spend more money, drive inflation even higher. It's like you're, you're, it's the wreck of the Edmund Fitzgerald, but you're seeing it and you're going toward this certain doom, but you're just turning up the speed of the boat instead of changing course. But the thing is, if Biden were to admit that midstream here, if he were trying to, and they, people are talking about a pivot, political pivot by Joe Biden, he did that a little bit with regard to back the blue. And he used twice in the speech he recently gave that I just talked about, we do not want to defund the police. He used that. But if they were to course correct now, the way, say, Bill Clinton did in 1994, when he lost, you know, in a in a manifestly transformative election a red wave newt gingrich the republican revolution which the aforementioned rush limbaugh was a big part of or even president obama in 2010 i mean he had to pivot somewhat if Biden even attempts to do that, it goes back on everything he promised in his campaign. I'm going to shut down the virus. He didn't do that. He's going to rebuild the economy. That's not happening. I mean, he's giving you fake numbers about jobs that were there, that were taken away, that were then put back. I mean, there's not new jobs created. And that's why we have a labor shortage right now. I, I just think that Biden, he, he's too simple-minded and he's too pot-committed to this far left notion that spending will cure all and sure. it's gonna it's gonna you're right it's gonna drive us into a recession yeah. if it stays the way Well, it. i'm
0: not defending biden because i never like, <laughs> I, I i i always wish that the liberals would put up a smarter better candidate but hmm. um but obviously this was happening under president trump too uh like i say most Republicans in Congress voted to spend all this money. The Federal Reserve was doing that quantitative easing before Biden came into office um, under Trump, under the Trump administration. Donald Trump signed all these stimulus laws. Yep. Um, so unfortunately, it's both parties to blame here. And really, the, the failure to think ahead and do what's best for our kids um, is, is remarkable to me. And, and we're really, we're really going to feel the consequences of this, both not just in terms of inflation, we're feeling that now, but now the recession type behavior that is going to follow because of the rising interest rates and trying to fix this. So it's a mess.
1: (laughs) (laughs) No, and you're right. I want to concur with something you just said, and that is unfortunately the Republican party as a whole, especially in Congress, and President Trump, to a degree, also addicted to spending. It's just spent in different ways and for different priorities. And with very few exceptions, you could name maybe Thomas Massey and Rand Paul, both out of Kentucky, possibly Mike Lee in Utah. I mean, these are conservatives uh, through and through on uh, economics and finance, and they, they know what uh, the troubles are that are ahead. Unfortunately, you have a, a core of a Republican Party, the traditional Mitch McConnell Portion faction wing of the party that you're right that they, they are spending out of control as well, right? It's been an epidemic in washington now I mean you can go back to the reagan years and ronald mm-hmm. reagan was faced with a very difficult task coming out of that recession with jimmy carter And trying to stimulate the economy. So he d- Drastically cut taxes that created an enormous federal budget deficit and we've been paying for it ever since we really have however You know in justifying the means in the case of reagan he turned the economy around. around. The, the 80s were roaring, large part because of him. And that continued into the 90s under a very peaceful and prosperous presidency, I will admit and acknowledge, of Bill Clinton. And I think you know Ronald Reagan unleashed you know, the power of the American economy through capitalism and so forth and low taxes, low regulation. But again, there's not a financial steward, right? A party or a, a leader in a party that has that kind of power and influence that's going right. to harness spending because that's not popular. Cutting spending is not popular because what are you going to cut? And cut the military? You're going to cut, you know, federal spending uh, for uh, roads and bridges, like right. we saw with infrastructure. We just saw that spending bill pass. Anything you cut is going to be met with resist anything you cut. And especially, as we know, by the lobbyists in Washington, who are our politicians beholden to? It's that whole swamp notion. Right.
0: Well, Ryan, it's been great talking to you.
1: <laughs> I've um, enjoyed I've this. Thank I, you. I
0: very much enjoy this. Um, I hope that you'll do it again with me. Sure. Thanks for thanks for listening, listeners. And uh, if you have any questions or comments or to- uh, requested topics, just email us at redviewblueview.com at gmail dot com.